Chapter Four of History of the World War by Francis March and Richard Beamish. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Four, The Plotter Behind the Scenes. One factor alone caused the Great War. It was not the assassination at Sarajevo, nor the Slavic ferment of anti-Teutonism in Austria and the Balkans. The only cause of the world's greatest war was the determination of the German high command and the powerful circle surrounding it that der Tag had arrived. The assassination at Sarajevo was only the peg for the pendant of war. Another peg would have been found inevitably had not the projection of that assassination presented itself as the excuse. Germany's military machine was ready. A grey-green uniform that at a distance would fade into misty obscurity had been devised after exhaustive experiments by optical, dye and cloth experts cooperating with the military high command. These uniforms had been standardized and fitted for the millions of men enrolled in Germany's regular and reserve armies. Rifles, great pyramids of munitions, field kitchens, traveling post offices, motor lorries, a network of military railways leading to the French and Belgian border, all these and more had been made ready. German soldiers had received instructions which enabled each man at a signal to go to an appointed place where he found everything in readiness for his long forced marches into the territory of Germany's neighbors. More than all this, Germany's spy system, the most elaborate and unscrupulous in the history of mankind, had enabled the German high command to construct in advance of the declaration of war concrete gun emplacements in Belgium and other invaded territory. The cellars of dwellings and shops rented or owned by German spies were camouflaged concrete foundations for the great guns of Austria and Germany. These emplacements were in exactly the right position for use against the fortresses of Germany's foes. Advertisements and shop signs were used by spies as guides for the marching German armies of invasion. In brief, Germany had planned for war. She was approximately ready for it under the shelter of such high-sounding phrases as we demand our place in the sun and the seas must be free the german people were educated to the belief that the hour of germany's destiny was at hand german psychologists like other german scientists had cooperated with the imperial militaristic government for many years to bring the germanic mind into a condition of docility so well did they understand the mentality and the trends of character of the german people that it was comparatively easy to impose upon them a militaristic system and philosophy by which the individual yielded countless personal liberties for the alleged good of the state rigorous and compulsory military service unquestioning adherence to the doctrine that might makes right and accession to the all-highest as the emperor was styled of supreme powers in the state are some of the sufferances to which the german people submitted German propaganda abroad was quite as vigorous as at home, but infinitely less successful. The German high command did not expect England to enter the war. It counted upon America's neutrality, with a leaning toward Germany. It believed that German colonization in South Africa and South America would incline these vast domains toward friendship for the central empires. How mistaken the propagandists and psychologists were, events have demonstrated. It was this dream of world domination by Teutonic culture that supplied the motive leading to the world's greatest war. Bosnia, an unwilling province of Austria-Hungary, at one time a province of Serbia and overwhelmingly Slavic in its population, had been seething for years with an anti-Teutonic ferment. The Teutonic court at Vienna, 
leading the minority Germanic party in Austria-Hungary, had been endeavoring to allay the agitation among the Bosnian Slavs. In pursuance of that policy, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, heir presumptive to the thrones of Austria and Hungary, and his morganatic wife, Sophia Chotek, Duchess of Hohenberg, on June 28, 1914, visited Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia. On the morning of that day, while they were being driven through the narrow streets of the ancient town, a bomb was thrown at them, but they were uninjured. They were driven through the streets again in the afternoon for purpose of public display. A student just out of his teens, one Gavrilo Princep, attacked the royal party with a magazine pistol and killed both the archduke and his wife. Here was the excuse for which Germany had waited. Here was the dawn of the day. The Germanic court of Austria asserted that the crime was the result of a conspiracy, leading directly to the Slavic court of Serbia. The Serbians in their turn declared that they knew nothing of the assassination. They pointed out the fact that Sofia Chotek was a Slav, and that Francis Ferdinand was more liberal than any other member of the Austrian royal household, and finally that he, more than any other member of the Austrian court, understood and respected the Slavic character and aspirations. At six o'clock on the evening of July 23rd, Austria sent an ultimatum to Serbia, presenting eleven demands and stipulating that categorical replies must be delivered before six o'clock on the evening of July 25th. Although the language in which the ultimatum was couched was humiliating to Serbia, the answer was duly delivered within the stipulated time. The demands of the Austrian note in brief were as follows. 1. The Serbian government to give its formal assurance of its condemnation of Serb propaganda against Austria. 2. The next issue of the Serbian official journal was to contain a declaration to that effect. 3. This declaration to express regret that Serbian officers had taken part in the propaganda. 4. The Serbian government to promise that it would proceed rigorously against all guilty of such activity. 5. This declaration to be at once communicated by the King of Serbia to his army and to be published in the official bulletin as an order of the day. 6. All anti-Austrian publications in Serbia to be suppressed. 7. The Serbian political party known as the National Union to be suppressed and its means of propaganda to be confiscated. 8. All anti-Austrian teachings in the schools of Serbia to be suppressed. 9. All officers, civil and military, who might be designated by Austria as guilty of anti-Austrian propaganda to be dismissed by the Serbian government. 10. Austrian agents to cooperate with the Serbian government in suppressing all anti-Austrian propaganda and to take part in the judicial proceedings conducted in Serbia against those charged with complicity in the crime at Sarajevo. 11. Serbia to explain to Austria the meaning of anti-Austrian utterances of Serbian officials at home and abroad since the assassination. To the first and second demands, Serbia unhesitatingly assented. To the third demand, Serbia assented, although no evidence was given to show that Serbian officers had taken part in the propaganda. The Serbian government assented to the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth demands also. Extraordinary as was the ninth demand, which would allow the Austrian government to prescribe Serbian officials, so eager for peace and friendship was the Serbian government that it assented to it with the stipulation that the Austrian government should offer some proof of the guilt of the prescribed officers. The tenth demand, which in effect allowed Austrian agents to control the police and courts of Serbia, it was not possible for Serbia to accept without abrogating her sovereignty. However, it was not unconditionally rejected. 
but the Serbian government asked that it be made the subject of further discussion, or be referred to arbitration. The Serbian government assented to the eleventh demand, on the condition that if the explanations which would be given concerning the alleged anti-Austrian utterances of Serbian officials would not prove satisfactory to the Austrian government, the matter should be submitted to mediation or arbitration. Behind the threat conveyed in the Austrian ultimatum was the first menacing figure of militant Germany. The veil that had hitherto concealed the hands that worked the string was removed when Germany, under the pretense of localizing the quarrel to Serbian and Austrian soil, interrogated France and England, asking them to prevent Russia from defending Serbia in the event of an attack by Austria upon the Serbs. England and France promptly refused to participate in a tragedy which would deliver Serbia to Austria as Bosnia had been delivered. Russia, bound by race and creed to Serbia, read into the ultimatum of Teutonic culture a determination for warfare. Mobilization of the Russian forces along the Austrian frontier was arranged when it was seen that Serbia's pacific reply to Austria's demands would be contemptuously disregarded by Germany and Austria. During the days that intervened between the issuance of the ultimatum and the actual declaration of war by Germany against Russia on Saturday, August 1st, various sincere efforts were made to stave off the world-shaking catastrophe. Arranged chronologically, these events may be thus summarized. Russia, on July 24th, formally asked Austria if she intended to annex Serbian territory by way of reprisal for the assassination at Sarajevo. On the same day, Austria replied that it had no present intention to make such annexation. Russia then requested an extension of the 48-hour time limit named in the ultimatum. Austria, on the morning of Saturday, July 25th, refused Russia's request for an extension of the period named in the ultimatum. On the same day, the newspapers published in Petrograd printed an official note issued by the Russian government warning Europe generally that Russia would not remain indifferent to the fate of Serbia. These newspapers also printed the appeal of the Serbian crown prince to the Tsar, dated on the preceding day, urging that Russia come to the rescue of the menaced Serbs. Serbia's peaceful reply, surrendering on all points except one, and agreeing to submit that to arbitration, was sent late in the afternoon of the same day, and that night Austria declared the reply to be unsatisfactory, and withdrew its minister from Belgrade. England commenced its attempts at pacification on the following day, Sunday, July 26th. Sir Edward Grey spent the entire Sabbath in the Foreign Office and personally conducted the correspondence that was calculated to bring the dispute to a peaceful conclusion. He did not reckon, however, with a Germany determined upon war, a Germany whose manufacturers, shipowners, and yunkers had combined with its militarists to achieve Germany's place in the sun, even though the world would be stained in the blood of the most frightful war this earth has ever known. Realization of this fact did not come to Sir Edward Grey until his negotiations with Germany and with Austria-Hungary had proceeded for some time. His first suggestion was that the dispute between Russia and Austria be committed to the arbitration of Great Britain, France, Italy, and Germany. Russia accepted this, but Germany and Austria rejected it. Russia had previously suggested that the dispute be settled by a conference between the diplomatic heads at Vienna and Petrograd. This also was refused by Austria. Sir Edward Grey renewed his efforts on Monday, July 27th, with an invitation to Germany to present suggestions of its own, looking toward a settlement. This note was never answered. Germany took the position that its proposition to compel Russia to stand aside while Austria punished Serbia 
had been rejected by England and France, and it had nothing further to propose. During all this period of negotiation, the German Foreign Office, to all outward appearances at least, had been acting independently of the Kaiser, who was in Norway on a vacation trip. He returned to Potsdam on the night of Sunday, July 26th. On Monday morning the Tsar of Russia received a personal message from the Kaiser, urging Russia to stand aside that Serbia might be punished. The Tsar immediately replied with the suggestion that the whole matter be submitted to the Hague. No reply of any kind was ever made to this proposal by Germany. All suggestions and negotiations looking forward to peace were brought to a tragic end on the following day, Tuesday, July 28th, when Austria declared war on Serbia, having speedily mobilized troops at strategic points on the Serbian border. Russian mobilization, which had been proceeding only in a tentative way on the Austrian border, now became general, and on July 30th, mobilization of the entire Russian army was proclaimed. Germany's effort to exclude England from the war began on Thursday, July 29th. A note sounding Sir Edward Grey on the question of British neutrality in the event of war was received, and a curt refusal to commit the British Empire to such a proposal was the reply. Sir Edward Grey, in a last determined effort to avoid a world war, suggested to Germany, Austria, Serbia, and Russia that the military operations commenced by Austria should be recognized as merely a punitive expedition. He further suggested that when a point in Serbian territory previously fixed upon should have been reached, Austria would halt and submit her further action to arbitration in the Conference of the Powers. Russia and Serbia agreed unreservedly to this proposition. Austria gave a half-hearted assent to the principle involved. Germany made no reply. The die was cast for war on the following day, July 31st, when Germany made a dictatorial and arrogant demand upon Russia that mobilization of that nation's military forces be stopped within twelve hours. Russia made no reply, and on Saturday, August 1st, Germany set the world aflame with the dread of war's horror by her declaration of war upon Russia. Germany's responsibility for this monumental crime against the peace of the world is eternally fixed upon her, not only by these outward and visible acts and negotiations, not only by her years of patient preparation for the war into which she plunged the world. The responsibility is fastened upon her forever by the revelations of her own ambassador to England during this fateful period. Prince Lynchnowski, in a remarkable communication which was given to the world, laid bare the machinations of the German high command and its advisers. He was a guest of the Kaiser at Kiel, on board the imperial yacht Meteor, when the message was received informing the Kaiser of the assassination at Sarajevo. His story continues. Being unacquainted with the Vienna viewpoint and what was going on there, I attached no very far-reaching significance to the event, but, looking back, I could feel sure that in the Austrian aristocracy a feeling of relief outweighed all others. His Majesty regretted that his efforts to win over the Archduke to his ideas had thus been frustrated by the Archduke's assassination. I went on to Berlin and saw the Chancellor, von Bethmann Hollweg. I told him that I regarded our foreign situation as very satisfactory, as it was a long time indeed since we had stood so well with England, and in France there was a pacifist cabinet. Herr von Bethmann Hollweg did not seem to share my optimism. He complained of the Russian armaments. I tried to tranquilize him with the argument that it was not to Russia's interest to attack us, and that such an attack would never have English or French support, as both countries wanted peace. 
I went from him to Dr. Zimmerman, the undersecretary, who was acting for Herr von Jago, the foreign secretary, and learned from him that Russia was about to call up 900,000 new troops. His words unmistakably denoted ill-humor against Russia, who, he said, stood everywhere in our way. In addition, there were questions of commercial policy that had to be settled. That General von Moltke was urging war was, of course, not told to me. I learned, however, that Herr von Schirsky, the German ambassador in Vienna, had been reproved because he had said that he had advised Vienna to show moderation toward Serbia. Prince Lichnowsky went to his summer home in Silesia, quite unaware of the impending crisis. He continues, When I returned from Silesia on my way to London, I stopped only a few hours in Berlin, where I heard that Austria intended to proceed against Serbia so as to bring to an end an unbearable state of affairs. Unfortunately, I failed at the moment to gauge the significance of the news. I thought that once more it would come to nothing, that even if Russia acted threateningly, the matter could soon be settled. I now regret that I did not stay in Berlin and declare there and then that I would have no hand in such a policy. There was a meeting in Potsdam, as early as July 5th, between the German and Austrian authorities, at which meeting war was decided on. Prince Lichnowsky says, I learned afterwards that at the decisive discussion at Potsdam on July 5th, the Austrian demand had met with the unconditional approval of all the personages in authority. It was even added that no harm would be done if war with Russia did come out of it. It was so stated at least in the Austrian report received at London by Count Mensdorf, the Austrian ambassador to England. At this point I received instructions to endeavor to bring the English press to a friendly attitude in case Austria should deal the death blow to greater Serbian hopes. I was to use all my influence to prevent public opinion in England from taking a stand against Austria. I remembered England's attitude during the Bosnian annexation crisis, when public opinion showed itself in sympathy with the Serbian claims to Bosnia. I recalled also the benevolent promotion of nationalistic hopes that went on in the days of Lord Byron and Garibaldi, and on these and other grounds I thought it extremely unlikely that English public opinion would support a punitive expedition against the Archduke's murderers. I thus felt it my duty to utter an urgent warning against the whole project, which I characterized as venturesome and dangerous. I recommended that councils of moderation be given Austria, as I did not believe that the conflict could be localized, that is to say, it could not be limited to a war between Austria and Serbia. Hervaniego answered me that Russia was not prepared, that there would be more or less of a rumpus, but that the more firmly we stood by Austria, the more surely Russia would give way. Austria was already blaming us for flabbiness, and we could not flinch. On the other hand, Russian sentiment was growing more unfriendly all the time, and we must simply take the risk. I subsequently learned that this attitude was based on advices from Count Portalis, the German ambassador in Petrograd, that Russia would not stir under any circumstances, information which prompted us to spur Count Berchtold on in his course. On learning the attitude of the German government, I looked for salvation through English mediation, knowing that Sir Edward Grey's influence in Petrograd could be used in the cause of peace. I, therefore, availed myself of my friendly relations with the minister to ask him confidentially to advise moderation in Russia in case Austria demanded satisfaction from the Serbians, as it seemed likely she would. The English press was quiet at first, and friendly to Austria, the assassination being generally condemned. By degrees, however, more and more voices made themselves heard, in the sense that, however necessary it might be to take cognizance of the crime, 
any exploitation of it for political ends was unjustifiable moderation was enjoined upon austria when the ultimatum came out all the papers with the exception of the standard were unanimous in condemning it the whole world outside of berlin and vienna realized that it meant war and a world war too the english fleet which happened to have been holding a naval review was not demobilized the british government labored to make the serbian reply conciliatory and the serbian answer was in keeping with the british efforts sir edward gray then proposed his plan of mediation upon the two points which serbia had not wholly conceded prince lynchnowski writes monsieur cambon for france marquis imperiali for italy and i were to meet with sir edward in the chair and it would have been easy to work out a formula for the debated points which had to do with the cooperation of imperial and royal officials in the inquiries to be conducted at belgrade by the exercise of goodwill everything could have been settled in one or two sittings and the mere acceptance of the british proposal would have relieved the strain and further improved our relations with england i seconded this plan with all my energies in vain i was told by berlin that it would be against the dignity of austria of course all that was needed was one hint from berlin to count berchtold the austrian foreign minister he would have satisfied himself with a diplomatic triumph and rested on the serbian answer that hint was never given on the contrary pressure was brought in favor of war after our refusal sir edward asked us to come forward with our proposal we insisted on war no other answer could i get from berlin than that it was a colossal condescension on the part of austria not to contemplate any acquisition of territory sir edward justly pointed out that one could reduce a country to vassalage without acquiring territory that russia would see this and regard it as a humiliation not to be put up with the impression grew stronger and stronger that we were bent on war otherwise our attitude toward a question in which we were not directly concerned was incomprehensible the insistent requests and well-defined declarations of m sesanoff the czar's positively humble telegrams sir edward's repeated proposals the warnings of the marquis san giuliano and of bolatti my own pressing admonitions were all of no avail berlin remained inflexible serbia must be slaughtered then on the twenty ninth sir edward decided upon his well-known warning i told him i had always reported to berlin that we should have to reckon with english opposition if it came to a war with france time and again the minister said to me if war breaks out it will be the greatest catastrophe the world has ever seen and now events moved rapidly count berchtold at the last decided to come around having up to that point played the role of strong man under guidance of berlin thereupon we in answer to russia's mobilization sent our ultimatum and declaration of war after russia had spent a whole week in fruitless negotiation and waiting thus ended my mission in london it had suffered shipwreck not on the wiles of the briton but on the wiles of our own policy were not those right who saw that the german people was pervaded with the spirit of tritsky and berhaldi which glorifies war as an end instead of holding it in abhorrence as an evil thing properly speaking militarism is a school for the people and an instrument to further political ends but in the patriarchal absolutism of a military monarchy militarism exploits politics to further its own ends and can create a situation which a democracy freed from yunkerdom would not tolerate that is what our enemies think that is what they are bound to think when they see that in spite of capitalistic industrialism and in spite of socialistic organizations 
the living as nietzsche said are still ruled by the dead the democratization of germany the first war aim proposed by our enemies will become a reality this is the frank statement of a german statesman made long before germany received its knockout blow it was written when germany was sweeping all before it on land and when the u-boat was at the height of its murderous powers on the high seas no one in nor out of germany has controverted any of its statements and it will forever remain as one of the counts of the indictment against germany and the sole cause of the world's greatest misery the war america's outstanding authority on matters of international conduct former secretary of state elihu root declared that the world war was a mighty and all-embracing struggle between two conflicting principles of human right and human duty it was a conflict between the divine right of kings to govern mankind through armies and nobles and the right of the peoples of the earth who toil and endure to aspire to govern themselves by law under justice and in the freedom of individual manhood after the declaration of war against russia by germany events marched rapidly and inevitably toward the general conflagration germany's most strenuous efforts were directed toward keeping england out of the conflict we have seen in the revelations of prince lichnowsky how eager was england to divert germany's murderous purpose there are some details however required to fill in the diplomatic picture president poincare of the french republic on july thirtieth asked the british ambassador in paris for an assurance of british support on the following day he addressed a similar letter to king george of england both requests were qualifiedly refused on the ground that england wished to be free to continue negotiations with germany for the purpose of averting the war in the meantime the german government addressed a note to england offering guarantees for belgian integrity provided belgium did not side with france offering to respect the neutrality of holland and giving assurance that no french territory in europe would be annexed if germany won the war sir edwin gray described this as a shameful proposal and rejected it on july thirtieth on july thirty first england sent a note to france and germany asking for a statement of purpose concerning belgian neutrality france immediately announced that it would respect the treaty of eighteen thirty nine and its reaffirmation in eighteen seventy guaranteeing belgium's neutrality this treaty was entered into by germany england france austria and russia germany's reply on august first was a proposal that she would respect the neutrality of belgium if england would stay out of the war this was promptly declined on august second the british cabinet agreed that if the german fleet attempted to attack the coast of france the british fleet would intervene germany the next day sent a note agreeing to refrain from naval attacks on france provided england would remain neutral but declined to commit herself as to the neutrality of belgium before this however on august second Germany had announced to Belgium its intention to enter Belgium for the purpose of attacking France. The Belgian minister in London made an appeal to the British Foreign Office and was informed that invasion of Belgium by Germany would be followed by England's declaration of war. Monday, August 3rd, was signalized by Belgium's declaration of its neutrality and its firm purpose to defend its soil against invasion by France, England, Germany, or any other nation the actual invasion of belgium commenced on the morning of august fourth when twelve regiments of uhlans crossed the frontier near vies and came in contact with a belgian force driving it back upon liege king albert of belgium promptly appealed to england russia and france for aid in repelling the invader 
England sent an ultimatum to Germany fixing midnight of August 4th as the time for expiration of the ultimatum. This demanded that satisfactory assurances be furnished immediately that Germany would respect the neutrality of Belgium. No reply was made by Germany, and England's declaration of war followed. Chancellor von Bethmann-Hollweg of the German Empire wrote Germany's infamy into history when, in a formal statement, he acknowledged that the invasion of Belgium was a wrong that we will try to make good again as soon as our military ends have been reached. To Sir Edward Vokin, British ambassador to Germany, he addressed the inquiry, Is it the purpose of your country to make war upon Germany for the sake of a scrap of paper? The Treaty of 1839-1870, guaranteeing Belgium's neutrality, was the scrap of paper. With the entrance of England into the war, the issue between autocracy and democracy was made plain before the people of the world. Austria, and later Turkey, joined with Germany. France and Japan, by reason of their respective treaty obligations, joined England and Russia. Italy, for the time, preferred to remain neutral, ignoring her implied alliance with the Teutonic Empires. How other nations lined up on the one side and the other is indicated by the State Department's list of war declarations and diplomatic severances, which follows. Austria against Belgium, August 28, 1914. Austria against Japan, August 27, 1914. Austria against Montenegro, August 9, 1914. Austria against Russia, August 6, 1914. Austria against Serbia, July 28, 1914. Belgium against Germany, August 4, 1914. Brazil against Germany, October 26, 1917. Bulgaria against Serbia, October 14, 1915. China against Austria, August 14, 1917. China against Germany, August 14, 1917. Costa Rica against Germany, May 23, 1918. Cuba against Germany, April 7, 1917. Cuba against Austria-Hungary, December 16, 1917. France against Austria, August 13, 1914. France against Bulgaria, August 16, 1915. France against Germany, August 3, 1914. France against Turkey, November 5, 1914. Germany against Belgium, August 4, 1914. Germany against France, August 3, 1914. Germany against Portugal, March 9, 1916. Germany against Romania, September 14, 1916. Germany against Russia, August 1, 1914. Great Britain against Austria, August 13, 1914. Great Britain against Bulgaria, October 15, 1915. Great Britain against Germany, August 4, 1914. Great Britain against Turkey, November 5, 1914. Greece against Bulgaria, November 28, 1916. Provisional Government. Greece against Bulgaria, July 2, 1917. Government of Alexander. Greece against Germany, November 28, 1916. Provisional Government. Greece against Germany, July 2, 1917. Government of Alexander. Guatemala against Germany and Austria-Hungary, April 22, 1918. Haiti against Germany, July 15, 1918. Honduras against Germany, July 19, 1918. Italy against Austria, May 24, 1915. Italy against Bulgaria, October 19, 1915. Italy against Germany, August 28, 1916. Italy against Turkey, August 21, 1915. 
Japan against Germany, August 23, 1914. Liberia against Germany, August 4, 1917. Montenegro against Austria, August 4, 1914. Montenegro against Germany, August 9, 1914. Nicaragua against Germany, May 24, 1918. Panama against Germany, April 7, 1917. Panama against Austria, December 10, 1917. Portugal against Germany, November 23, 1914. Resolution passed, authorizing military intervention as ally of England. Portugal against Germany, May 19, 1915. Military aid granted. Romania against Austria, August 27, 1916. Allies of Austria also consider it a declaration. Russia against Germany, August 7, 1914. Russia against Bulgaria, October 19, 1915. Russia against Turkey, November 3, 1914. San Marino against Austria, May 24, 1915. Serbia against Bulgaria, October 16, 1915. Serbia against Germany, August 6, 1914. Serbia against Turkey, December 2, 1914. Siam against Austria, July 22, 1917. Siam against Germany, July 22, 1917. Turkey against Allies, November 23, 1914. Turkey against Romania, August 29, 1916. United States against Germany, April 6, 1917. United States against Austria-Hungary, December 7, 1917. Severance of Diplomatic Relations The nations that formally severed relations, whether afterward declaring war or not, are as follows. Austria against Japan, August 26, 1914. Austria against Portugal, March 16, 1916. Austria against Serbia, July 26, 1914. Austria against the United States, April 8, 1917. Bolivia against Germany, April 17, 1917. Brazil against Germany, April 11, 1917. China against Germany, March 14, 1917. Costa Rica against Germany, September 21, 1917. Ecuador against Germany, December 7, 1917. Egypt against Germany, August 13, 1914. France against Austria, August 10, 1914. Greece against Turkey, July 2, 1917, Government of Alexander. Greece against Austria, July 2, 1917, Government of Alexander. Guatemala against Germany, April 27, 1917. Haiti against Germany, June 17, 1917. Honduras against Germany, May 17, 1917. Nicaragua against Germany, May 18, 1917. Peru against Germany, October 6, 1917. Santo Domingo against Germany, June 8, 1917. Turkey against United States, April 20, 1917. United States against Germany, February 3, 1917. Uruguay against Germany, October 7, 1917. End of chapter 4